Welcome to Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people intelligence, deal intelligence, and market intelligence. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. Sheena, can I be completely honest with you for a second? Uh, Yeah, I'm kind of nervous now. I am not a fan of the phrase change management. <laughs> I can take that. I thought it was going to be something harsher. I could I have been harsher. Yeah, I didn't come up with it, so I am not offended at all. Well, that's good, and I, I'm glad you are not offended. I say it because it's one of those things where I know it's important. I've been a part of it and uh, like supported these initiatives, but the, the mm-hmm. phrase for some reason is just like it's not sexy. It doesn't sound fun. Sounds like going to the mm-hmm. dentist, which is also important, but not not pleasurable. Right before this recording, I was talking to my husband about how much he hates going to the dentist, like literally five minutes ago. So I guess it was well-timed with our with change management. Fun fact, I need and have been procrastinating setting up an appointment <laughs> to go to the dentist. So maybe we're all aligned here. Um, and the reason why I mentioned that is because we had Barb McAteer, hope I'm saying the last name correctly, who was the head of sales coaching and enablement at Akamai Technologies. If you're not familiar with Akamai, for the listeners, there's over a thousand salespeople at Akamai. Before that, she was at Adobe where she was doing something similar for 5,000 employees. And we talk about change management. And the reason why I let this happen, knowing that I don't love the the, the phrase change management, was because Barb is fantastic at it. And she brings a interesting perspective in my book. And what I really loved about this episode, Sheena, is she shared very specific examples with companies we've all heard of down to kind of like tactical level stuff. So she did a really good job taking a what can be complex concept and making it really actionable. Totally agree. She's amazing and the premier expert on this, I would say, out of everyone we've ever had on the show. No offense to previous guests, but if you think you're going toe-to-toe with Barb, think again. (laughs) All right, let's go hang out with Barb. Barb, welcome to Reveal. We're super excited to have you here on the show. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I love the name of your podcast, by the way. Oh, thank you. So just kick things off, just in looking at your background and getting to know you over the last few weeks, you know, I found your background to be super interesting. Like you have your you most recently were heading up sales enablement at Akamai. But before that, you weren't a specialist in enablement by any means. You spent many, many years in partnerships and alliances, moving into education and strategy work related to sales. So how did you land up in sales enablement? Yeah, it's a... That's an interesting note of my background there. It's uh, one thing that I now pride myself in, but uh, and I'd love to tell you that it was all planned, but it wasn't necessarily all planned out along the journey. Fact of the matter is, you know, I come from a sales and uh, 
sales management background. And what was noticed as I went along my journey was that people were pulling me in to do other things, a lot of sales enablement, almost in every role, right? No matter what you're doing as a seller, change drives the need to enable people in a different way, to change the process, to change the way we engage. And so I was always doing that, but what made a difference and why I think I ended up at Akamai in my last position there was because they were looking for an enablement person who was strategic, who had that selling background. That makes a lot of sense. I think the the variety in your experiences and the sales background is like very well suited for a large and rapidly growing sales force. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about like what the sales org looked like um, at Akamai? Yeah, that's a, um, it's a large organization of sellers. If you look at the all-in number, it's about 1,100 sellers. So that's got your pre-sales, your actual revenue generating uh, members of the team and sales leadership. And it was both media and web. So there's two very distinct sales organizations inside Akamai that most recently were brought together under one umbrella. So what was interesting, though, about the journey there is that you had two very different go-to-markets. And generally speaking, sales coaching and sales enablement is intended to bring together, to unify, to create a methodology and or a go-to-market that is completely disciplined around one standard. So it was a little challenging, but what was great was that we had the opportunity to really look at both parts of the organization and apply it as needed. I like that a lot. Now, Barb, you speak to me, and here's why. You've mentioned that one of your highest values is commitment to being your most authentic self. It's something that I value. It's something I was shied away from earlier in my career and have more recently really embraced this. What does being truly authentic look like for you? Yeah, it's really important to me, Devin, so I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, I, too, was kind of guided in a direction that was different early on in my career. You know, here's the way you have to be, both as a professional, but as a woman, um, high tech, the industry itself had expectations. But over the years, um, I was fortunate and had a lot of coaching and experiences with some great leaders who said, no, the best thing. And the best leaders are those who are their most authentic selves. And to me, what I defined that as was being real. You know, that includes showing vulnerabilities, right? As a leader, sometimes we know exactly where we want to go, but we're not clear on how we're going to get there. Mm -hmm. And that's why teams are so important, right? And a diverse talent pool or what I like to call a tapestry of talent is really critical because you pull on each other's strengths to get to that common goal. And being my authentic self, though, also means that I'm going to be direct. People aren't going to experience Barb in our personal life and Barb at work and see two different pictures or experience me differently. Uh, communicating directly means being honest about all things that are present and coming. And so I think um, very good leadership, strong leadership includes the ability to call out that which we may not like, we may be afraid of, but we're going to deal with it as a team. So that's what I define as being my authentic self. I absolutely love that. Especially the, you know, 
you have to be brave to be vulnerable. I think mm-hmm. in general, let alone in front of your your coworkers and your colleagues and your peers. So, I definitely respect that, and it is just uh, very motivating and validating to hear that come from you. I've been fortunate, Devin. I really have had very brave, what I call fearless leaders uh, around me throughout the journey. So they've uh, they've taught me well. So today we want to go deep into the topic of change management. I think for some folks, it's one of those terms that's like written in business books, like business process optimization or like something complex like that. What does it actually mean? What does this mean for my business? Like when do we do change management? So maybe just to level set, can you help tell us what is change management? The definition is important because you're right. Everybody looks at it differently, expects different things uh, through the process, and even, you know, may focus on outputs versus outcomes. So when I think about change management, there's really three areas. It always starts with individuals. The people are going to be the most important component. But the second piece is the initiative itself or the organizational change. You know, why are we doing it as a company? And then there's the enterprise piece. And that is focused on how are we going to not only drive change, but then be consistent in adopting and moving, transitioning to that future state. So people, the initiative or the org and the enterprise. And I think the, you know, the important thing is to always focus on the outcome. Right. So change management to your question is applicable when you're trying to move from one state to another, uh, drive a new initiative. It could be we want to move into a new market outside of the U.S. It might be we want to develop a different go to market. We're going to sell our product or solutions differently. But you'll know based on the motivator and then the definition of the outcome has to be clear in order for successful change management to happen. I mean, it seems like a lofty, challenging, ambitious um, initiative, right? Especially the larger the organization and and you've come from uh, really, uh, you know, Fortune 100 type of companies like Adobe, where it can be hard to get people to change their behavior, right? It's not easy, especially if experienced folks have been doing something one way for many, many years, sometimes for decades, What are some common misconceptions that leaders may have about implementing this type of change? Yeah, I think first to your point about it, it seems pretty lofty. It is, you know, there are studies, one done by Forbes that I'm constantly reminding myself about, which is 62% of employees don't want to change. And that's a lot more than half, right? So it doesn't matter where you're trying to drive a change, people are people. And more than half of them are going to just naturally want to resist. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just a fact. And so some of the challenges or the misconceptions are that once you design the process, you know where you're going, you set your metrics in place, that it will happen. Um, That is not the case. Change management will have challenges every step along the way. Generally speaking, it will feel like two steps back and only one forward. The most important thing is perseverance for the team, for the leader, for the executive sponsor. I mean, you just have to have grit. So I'd say the biggest challenge 
is when an organization is not truly committed mm. to the change itself. How do you spot check that that commitment is there? That's, um, <laughs> I'm hesitating because sometimes when you spot it, you, you want to run, but you're, you're invested, right? Yeah. And you know that you need to finish this at least as best you can. One of the indicators to an issue that may come up is when members of your team or the community you're serving, in the case of Akamai, those 1,100 sellers, in the case of Adobe, we actually transitioned to a sales uh, methodology called value selling, and that was over 5,000 people, right? doesn't matter where you're doing it. But one of the big red flags is when people are actually routinely focused on outliers, okay, and or they're making exceptions for so they'll say, well, you know what, there is a different scenario here in public sector or federal government sales. Right. You know, you can't apply. You can't like, are, you've got to be ready for those challenges. Aren't we still selling to people? Aren't we still focused on, you know, identifying pain? Aren't we still trying to provide value? But you have to really generate very specific answers around how you're going to do things in federal government that are specific to that space, right? And then there's the outliers, you know, a situation that says, well, you know, these customers, for example, we've been engaged with them for so long. There's so much loyalty there. We just know they're going to do X or Y. Right. Okay. So we don't have to validate it. Maybe Um, again, it it may be true. Outliers are very real, but to have the ability to quickly adapt and provide the how be very explicit about how are we going to deal with that versus letting us stop us or creating more exceptions is key. That's really interesting to me because I got a flashback of a couple sales roles ago. There are four sales teams and we're all in different verticals. So, you know, they're, you know, already they're very different from each other. And I'm like holding up air quotes here and there's a new change management going, going out. And admittedly, I'm someone who I wouldn't say I like change. Like I don't love it. I don't thrive for it, but I do like to be someone who adopts it and shows other people, hey, it's doable and kind of like help help push that forward. That said, of the four teams, one team got out of a jail, out of, get out of jail free card. They just didn't have to do it. Didn't have to go to the training. Didn't have to worry about adopting this new technology. And the outcome even for me was, well, then why the hell should I do it? Like if they don't mm-hmm. even have to get considered, they don't even have to show up. And so I think, you know, kind of adding to your point, not only not letting the outliers get out of, you know, even considering it, but also understanding when you do let them get out of it, you're setting a bad example for the other people who might be, you know what I mean, more opt to buy into it. Yeah, the most successful change management efforts are those that are consistent. And that doesn't mean that there's consistency that says it's one size fits all. It might be different, like we said, for a vertical like public sector or healthcare or name any one of them. But the reality is that the end game, the application of the change and moving to that future state has to be the single focus. And the corporation and the executives at the top level need to be committed to it. When they're not, what you'll see, what will manifest in itself 
is a constant change. Companies, you'll see them every year. There's a whole new sales methodology, a whole new sales force. The go-to-market is different. I expect change, but you don't typically drop what you brought forward that year because change takes a little bit longer, and generally the outcomes will come the following year. Barb mentioned an interesting stat about managing employees through change. Let's dive deeper. The Forbes article titled, The Big Reason Why Some People Are Terrified of Change, states that 62% of people either don't like to leave their comfort zone or only do so occasionally. It's natural to be afraid of change, but when a company invests so heavily in a new go-to-market strategy, like a new product or selling into a new vertical, all hands have to be on deck. Employees need to be aligned on the change and understand the why. Even if the change varies across different levels of the business, the end goal must be the same. This is definitely a huge challenge, but that's why it's so important to listen to Barb's advice. In order to promote change management, the business needs to align and sales leaders must be on board to get all levels of the business ready to make the change. All in all, change management doesn't have to be two steps forward and one step back. It just requires alignment and grit to get the job done. Now, you said something a few minutes ago that caught my ear. Now, you said around, I'm going to just cut it to 60% of people don't want to change in the organization. We love data. That's a quick, great stat, but I want to put it into context. You said 1,000 people at Akamai. That means there are Mm -hmm. 600 individuals who do not want to do what Barb has presented that we should do. And I know you have a lot of examples. So can you share a real world example of your experience of how you were able to, you know, successfully carry out a change management project? That's a good way to kind of think about what are the tenants that will exist every time you take on change management and then how do you address them? Not do an end run, but actually address them. I think if I... If I would give you the example from Oracle, that was a company that was always maniacally focused on results. Okay, so what we needed to do as I joined the mergers and acquisitions team back before Oracle acquired the big one, which was PeopleSoft, right? Um, And that was more takeover than merger, right? Most in the industry won't ever forget that one. But what we needed to do was be clear about what was going to happen, right? And so Oracle was very clear. We were going to look at people. We were going to look at the partners. We were going to look at the process, business practices, pricing. And we were going to make a decision based on a sales playbook we put together in each of those categories, Hmm. right? That said, well, here's what we want to happen with the people, Here's what we want to happen with the partners. And sometimes the acquisition was such that you really wanted to retain all of the people because they had the expertise. We might not have wanted to keep the partners because we had a different partner strategy. So again, being very clear about the outcome, what is the vision of that future state? It takes some of the pressure and the stress off the people part, right? right? People know coming in like, Look, with PeopleSoft, Oracle was not an HR subject matter expert at the time. We weren't a lead. We needed those people. We made it clear that we wanted them to be retained. Okay, did we want all the partners? No. So we were clear about that too. 
clarity in communication, honesty, authenticity, mm-hmm. right? Being very uh, clear about the vision of what that future state looks like helps take away what people are feeling while they're resisting the change. They may not like it. That's not the point. Right. Okay. But at least, you know, so in my mind, we were successful at building to, you know, a playbook and rolling through, I think we did 50 some odd acquisitions in two and a half years when I was in that role in mergers and acquisitions. It was like just a factory, right? But it was because of that. We didn't discuss things in gray or ambiguous terms. Mm -hmm. We were very clear about what was going to happen. Sheena and I's face looked like the wide-eyed emoji when you said two (laughs) mergers in two years. But I looked at Sheena both and was like, wow, that's astonishing. The list was just, but, but we got it, right? We got it to the point where it was just business as usual. So talk a little bit more about the implications of any one of those acquisitions or the merger, quote unquote, merger with PeopleSoft. And how did that impact the sales orgs? Like on one hand, I can see the folks um, at the parent company uh, on the sales team. There may be some concern like, hey, we have these new folks coming in. There's increased competition. We may have to change our ways. They may have to sell new products. So there may be some hesitancy or concern. Um, and then especially for the, for the company being acquired and the sales or coming from there, um, they have to completely change, you know, they, they don't even know this new company anymore. So talk a little bit more about like the change management required for sales on both sides of that. Yeah, there's a, um, there's a very short answer to your question, which is it is very disruptive, right? So never kid yourself when something that large is happening, everything you said is very real, especially for the incoming employees, right? It's just completely disruptive. Everything they know has been lost. I find um, there were two things though, that I think allowed us for us to be more successful than most, let's say. And that was um, the sense of urgency, the timelines that we kept for ourselves were very, very clear. In the first 90 days, in the first 120 days, very specific things had to be done, regardless of how big the company was, right? So we'd have large organizations like PeopleSoft, we had Medium like BEA. You know, it wasn't all one size fits all there either. But the process and the communication was the same. The second thing was I would like to tell you that I always had a very clear methodology. There's a lot of change management models out there. There's five or six that are pretty uh, popular. And I didn't actually ever use just one of them, Mm -hmm. right? It just didn't seem like it fit any situation, whether it was this example at Oracle or their change I drove at companies like Adobe or most recently at Akamai. But At Oracle, when I was really engaged in this focus on all the acquisitions, I would look at these models. There's a company called uh, ProSci. It's it's professional science, right? And and that's what they do. They really specialize in change management. So McKinsey and Adcar, Lewis, you've got all these different models to look at. But what I found was similar in all of them was, one, a sense of urgency not only has to be created but maintained, around the mission of this change, okay, the outcomes that are expected. Two was communicating 
over-communicating, constantly communicating, being available to answer questions, coming up with new FAQs, right? And third, which is really probably the most important, is the focus on the people, that making sure that as soon as you could get people comfortable with wherever they were going, even if it wasn't staying inside the company, that you would be more successful. So it was speed of movement that mattered most. Barb, I'd love to know about the urgency, the maintaining it specifically. My first thought, I'm going to throw out my guesstimate, Mm -hmm. was milestones. You're talking about clear communication. To me, urgency is like, you know, if it's not told to be done by Friday, I do it whenever I kind of feel like it, right? right? So my thought is milestones, but is that true? And is there anything else that you use to ensure urgency over time? But that's, and it's a really good point when you say, you know, if you've got till Friday, you'll put it off till then. I think there's, what was that called? It's, I think it's Parkinson's law, right? That, that I says call it procrastination, but I'll take the scientific approach as yes, well. <laughs> that too. And, and it's just a reality about human beings. So the way in which you kind of keep the urgency going is definitely through milestones, but the communication is key as well. So I will tell you that the, culture at Oracle was very easy when it came to this topic, right? Because from Larry Ellison throughout the organization, it was clear you were going to have this company and the people determined to be butts and seats, if you will, by day X, you were going to have the solutions, services and products on the price list by day 100, whatever it was, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there wasn't any gray, We all understood, okay, that these deadlines were real, and if you didn't make them, there was going to be consequences. That wasn't always the case in my experience, right? In my experience after Oracle, I would find as we were driving change, we were allowed a little bit more ambiguity, right? A little bit of change or a lot of deadline movement and shifting. And uh, to be frank, I prefer the, the prior The sense of urgency can only be kept up regardless of the amount of milestones or what they are if you're intentional and and you're serious about it. And that a lot of companies find that hard, right? They find it really hard to be that strong and disciplined. I mean, I think it helps once you've done it before. Like when you were at Oracle, for example, like you went through multiple change management opportunities. I don't know what the right term is there. <laughs> yeah, they are. Um, he, me, like there were a lot of nece- necessary times where you had to implement change management. Um, so you were able to create a playbook of sorts. How do you measure whether change management has been successful or not? Um, and like, is there a way to effectively management uh, measure that so that next time you can be even better? Yeah, that, that is an ongoing learning process I find, right? So Let's go back to the mergers and acquisitions, for example, and then I'll compare and contrast that to another one that's coming to my mind at Akamai. With the mergers and acquisitions, we had those categories, people, partners, business practices, slash pricing, and there were dates, right? But there were different metrics that were set based on whatever the strategy was. Like I said, with PeopleSoft, we really wanted the core expertise, the subject matter experts to be on board. And we had a clear who's going to do what, right? The um, subject matter experts in HR were going to be our solution experts, okay? And the overriding account management would be done by somebody else. 
very distinct roles. But we also put numbers on that and said, so to be successful, we agreed, and originally we were guessing a lot of the time, but it was a percentage of those people that would be in those seats and maintaining their employment with Oracle 18 months from now, right? right? So we'd be measuring that with say 85% of these people we want to be on board, okay? Or if it was lower, that also was a different kind of exercise we had to go through, but it was still very clear what the outcome was supposed to be. I think that if I compare and contrast that, let's say with um, Adobe, I actually came in to do a job there that I was told they wanted me to work myself out of. So they said, Barb, we'd like you to come and lead this global license and compliance, later called license management team. But we'd like you to be out of that job completely and transform the team within three years. We didn't get it done in three years. We got it done in five. But, you know, let's face it. I went in knowing that I didn't know what the next job was going to be or if there would be one. And you kind of, you know, you have to be okay with that. The similarities were the clarity in where we were going, right? So as we started to move license management people into what would become customer success management roles, we had to be clear, like the people issue or challenge is these are very different skill sets. Some of you may want to and be able to go into this. Some of you may not. So let's start talking about your professional development. Let's start talking about where you best fit. Is it inside of Adobe? Is it outside? So you see the similarities, right, with the mergers and acquisitions, right, as far as having a commitment to the people and communicating clearly with them. But there was also this difficulty in the messaging, because it wasn't black and white and it wasn't always the news that people wanted to hear. So I think you evolve your metrics and how you measure success based on what's happening. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Like part of what you were saying is that um, things may not always work out like things will be so different in the new norm that it may not work for everybody involved. And that may be okay because the change is bigger than any one individual. So, you know, what worked when you were at PeopleSoft may not be what you want when you're now at Oracle, but I think it ends up kind of like working out for the organization and for the individual that there is this change. It's kind of bigger than the one person. um, And, maybe the new norm is good or it's best to depart ways. You know, to that point, Sheena, you're making me think about something I I should have said in the, in both of these um, examples with Oracle, we were very clear about why we were doing things and it was about the customer, right? The customer was looking for Oracle to provide a bigger umbrella, to be the expert in healthcare, in retail and, uh, you know, consumer product goods, a specific area of retail, financial services, banking, different from insurance. But we didn't have neither the expertise nor the solutions until we went on this merger and acquisition tear, right? And that was going to build out our actual go-to-market and the solution. So once you kept reminding people, 
right? Why are we doing this? Because we want to be more for those healthcare providers, more for the retailer than the database or apps company. We want to provide them with their go-to-market solution. You know, you've, you've, you've got people's heads around where they even fit in that or don't. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. likewise, at Adobe, right, it was customer-centric as well. The fact of the matter was we were moving people from on-premise software to software as a service. It's a very different model. So in, in both cases, with Oracle and with Akamai, right, there was a customer-centric focus. With Oracle, it was all about making sure that the customers were getting a service and a higher value from Oracle in their particular industry, broader offerings from us solving bigger challenges for them. On the Adobe side, it was also customer centric Mm. in that we wanted to be sure that the value confirmation that they would continue to receive from us was actually able to be achieved and that people were focused on that with the customer. Because when you move from the on-premise software model we had with our license management team to customer success management, really being heavily hands-on after the sale, that's a very different skill set and a different model. But again, it's what the customers wanted. So it was hard for anybody, even if you resist change, to argue with the outcome that we were trying to get to. That, I, that is so great. And I'm glad you gave that context. I think in my question, I was asking, like, how do you know, putting kind of the organization first but it's really about the customer. It's putting the customer first. And I think that will come back to the point about communication and the why, why is this happening? And weaving the customer story into that is super vital. It allows people to be really introspective. And if during the change management process, if you're really focused on professional development, professional development, especially these days, it's not just a ladder, It's a lattice. You can go left and right. You can leave and come back. You can leave and move on. It's all okay. And if you can just get people feeling comfortable with that type of change, right, and say, this could actually be a lot better for you, you know, but allow them to be part of making those decisions, the change will be so much easier. To wrap things up, we ask all of our guests one question. So can't wait to hear what your response will be. How would you describe sales in one word? In one word, I would say that sales is value. Thinking about it from all perspectives, me as a seller, sales leader, the customer's viewpoint, the support team, And unless there's value in whatever I buy, be it a car, a house, a TV, I'm I'm not going to be happy and satisfied and come back, right? Um, So, but if there's value, no matter what I bought, you know, the emotional side of it will keep me connected and loyal. It's fantastic. I love it. Value. You heard it from Barb. Barb, thanks again so much for joining us on Reveal. We had such a blast chatting with you here today. Same here. This was a lot of fun. More fun than I thought it was going to be. Thank you. (laughs) I don't know if the bar was low or if we just really over-delivered, but I will take that. Big thank you, Barb. We appreciate it. Have a great afternoon. 
Every week, we bring you a micro action, which is something you can think about or put into play immediately. Think about any potential gray spaces that might exist in your company's strategy and how they can be differently communicated to all levels of the business. How can you get everyone aligned with the ultimate goal and be clear how to drive business outcomes forward? At the end of the day, it's going to take getting everyone on board, marching the same direction to create successful outcomes. That's it for this week. I'll catch you next week on Review. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.